0: Welcome to the Truthiverse. My name is Brendan D. Murphy. This is where we unleash truth and freedom with no holds barred, no fear, and no limits. Come and evolve beyond the matrix with me and thrive, not just survive. This is a realm of empowering, uncommon awareness. This is my Truthiverse. If you're a discerning, open-minded, and dedicated seeker who loves a good deep dive into the nature of reality and consciousness, then do check out my book, The Grand Illusion, composed of over 10,000 hours of research and experience. Find more information and reader reviews at brendandmurphy.com TGI.
1: It's just kind of how my mind works. Um, I see things, and maybe if I came from the strict discipline of archaeology or Egyptology or Oceanography, I would look at them as well, this is just an anomaly, yeah, but I think because um i don't know, ever since I was young i've just been into everything, I could never pick a major, you know, I studied marine biology, history, philosophy, religion, this this, and I think that was a strength that I brought to the book because you know more than anything, it was kind of to me you know a synthesis of. A wide range of data that I think a lot of people had not really done. And I had read a lot of books on the subject for many years. And you know, there are excellent books just on the psychic aspect of Atlantis, past life regression, Akashic Records. There's dozens of books on Edgar Casey's concept of Atlantis, but and likewise dozens of you know alternative archaeology books on the subject. But I hadn't really cracked the code, so to speak, because so many of them, you know, particularly with the past life regression books that I had read, or just books on, you know, visions of past lives in high antiquity, high technology antiquity, they had presumed that the average person, you know, necessarily believed in that uh, to begin with. And although I believe these accounts are accurate based on what I've seen. And of course, after reading your book, um, you know, much more convinced that the powers of the minds are vastly underrated. Um, I had never really seen somebody, you know, write something where I gave this book to my friend's mother, for example, who, you know, she had no idea about Atlantis. She is kind of an open-minded person, very spiritual, but I wanted to write it in such a way that she could pick it up and actually say, Wait a minute, wait, there's actual evidence to support this, and at the same time, take somebody like a professional debunker, so to so called professional debunker, and show them, look, the same standards to which you apply you know the 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 idea that Socrates existed, which you know, we only know of because of Plato. Um, Why don't you apply that to Atlantis? Because it sounds fantastical, because it sounds um, like something that contradicts mainstream materialism. What is it? Um, And so that became a major part of the book was really seeing why is this story so discounted? And by what criteria do we judge any ancient history? um you know the source material for me as a professional historian beyond even 200 years is incredibly incredibly questionable um to go back to ancient greek times even if you're fluent in you know archaic greek there's so little of this material left given not just the destruction of temples libraries obviously the library of alexandria but you're only seeing what was written down by a handful of people who were permitted to write, who could read and write. Um, and that's in mainstream history. So when you're dealing with time spans in this case, stretching back 200,000 years, if we take Edgar Casey's timeline for the first kind of beginnings of what would later become uh, at that time, the continent of Atlantis, um, which is another important concept we can, Touch on this question of well, is an island, is a continent, and that was a critical part of the book was untangling this misconception as well. Because as we'll see, this civilization, if we are to believe these records, by Edgar Casey, Frederick Oliver, other channelers, and also archaeological evidence from oceanographers, this time period was nearly a quarter of a million years ago and stretched for, you know. 150 to 190,000 years itself as a civilization progressed, declined, was destroyed, was rebuilt. Um, And that, as Rudolf Steiner said uh, famously, you know, this this presents a major problem because when traditional archaeologists or historians are looking for, for example, the lost city of Troy from the Aeneid, Well, they have an idea. Okay, we go to Turkey. It's probably around here. And then, who's it? Heinrich Schliemann finds it. And, you know, shocks the world that it's real, finds the tomb of Priam and confirms essentially that this story was based on some sort of lived reality. But when you're dealing with a global culture that itself had dozens of iterations um, spanning themselves thousands of years. As Rudolf Steiner said, you might as well look in Montreal or Tennessee for evidence of Atlantis rather than just the mid-Atlantic ridge. And so I think this is why so many people go, Well, what are you talking about? You found Egyptian artifacts in the Grand Canyon, or you found, you know, Phoenician inscriptions in Brazil. That doesn't make sense. That's not where Plato said the island was. And then you have to go back and say, okay, well, what account was he talking about? You see? And as you start to piece the story together, you realize in the Edgar Cayce timeline, for example, the first, what he called thought forms, which were, I guess, if you want to call in this chapter, I called you know, spirits in the material world, the first incarnations of conscious thought in third dimensionality on some level and he's not very specific he describes them as thought forms wraith-like beings describes the earth's density as different um which again take with a grain of salt believe i wasn't there but he says this happened 10.5 million years ago in lemuria in what would be called the American Southwest, which he at the time says, stretching for millions of years, was really the only portion of the United States, Arizona, Nevada, parts of Colorado that was a major landmass. Um, The Mississippi Basin would have been an ocean. There was an inland ocean, which has been confirmed in Arizona right now. And over time, um, from 10.5 million years, he calls it to roughly 210,000 years, these thought forms experimented um, what he called entangled with the already existing animal and mineral and plant kingdoms. He calls them all kingdoms. Um, he believed everything was conscious. And in some sense, I think from you know your work that you would agree. And you know, this continent that he would have called Atlantis at the time um, began as a lost continent. You know, truly, when people say that, I would say they're correct if they're referring to this time period. And it would have stretched, according to him, basically where the Atlantic Ocean in its entirety from the Gulf of Mexico to modern day Spain is and filled the entire thing. Um, and this would have existed in his timeline from 200,000 200,010 BC with the incarnation of a thought form or soul however you want to say it called Amelius who had a twin soul and then split off and created this person called Lilith and then the sexes divided and they ruled for a time and then later during what he calls 50,722, very specific, um, dealing with the megafauna, which, again, would have been everywhere. You know, in Australia, you would have had nine-foot carnivorous kangaroos running <laughs> It was pretty terrifying. And so these people who lived in a society, according to him, more advanced than ours, still had to face the natural world. And he said one of their solutions to that was, it's very strange, but essentially... A directed energy weapon that they beamed at the stratosphere, according to him, and created a bounce back effect targeting volcanic flows near where these megafauna were gathering, hoping to change the climate on a local level and kill their food supply. Hmm. This is what I mean, it's a very bizarre reading for a man in a trance on a couch in 1932 before any of these weapons existed so he calls it things like the death ray and you one day you will discover what this technology is he's talking to you know housewives and businessmen in virginia beach in 1932 and what's so in any case just to briefly discuss this um he says it created the desired effect but it precipitated a pole shift Magnetic pole shift that had already been in progress and essentially precipitated an ice age and a tectonic shift that fractured the original continent into five islands. And what's really weird is, you know, as I was doing my corroborating evidence part of the book, where every time he says something, if I can find something from so called mainstream science that, you know, directly or indirectly aligns with it, I try. And what's unbelievable is that I found a journal article from a, um, I believe it was a study of megafaunal extinction in India, but it was talking about global extinction. And it said around 50,000 BC, for reasons we do not understand, a large portion of the megafauna suddenly went extinct. Now, again, I'm not saying that's proof. I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying he didn't say 90,000 BC. Similarly, when he said 210,000 BC with the first incarnations of what he would call Homo sapiens that had semi-modern forms. Study from Rice University confirms what they call mitochondrial Eve. The woman that were allegedly all human beings on Earth are descended from. Well, what's the date? 200,000 BC. And this... Became very weird and creepy for me as time went on because I'll give you a final example for you know Jason Colavito and friends out there uh, the debunking community Michael Shermer you know hi he, Edgar Casey said in 1932 he was describing the final destruction of Atlantis around 10,000 BC and he said around 10,500 people who were in touch with, it's not specified, extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial, interdimensional, whatever, a group of beings at a portal that allegedly existed were given foreknowledge of this impending disaster and were told to prepare an evacuation and a preservation of the records. And one of the places they went was the Giza Plateau, and for various reasons. and. In this reading, he says just offhandedly, oh, and by the way, at that time, the Nile River flowed into the Atlantic near the Congo end of the country, of the continent, rather, of Africa. And, you know, in 1932, I'm sure whoever was listening to it, okay. How do you know that? Well, in 1986, After satellite technology had gotten to the point where they could do shuttle imaging radar and actually go six to ten feet below the sands of the Sahara Desert. What do they find? What is Dr. Macaulay, a member of the you know American Geological Institute or something to that effect, with his whole team, what do they find using NASA radar and satellite imaging? They indeed find that the Nile River emptied into the Atlantic in a trench on the border of cameroon and nigeria at the end of what in his time would have been the extension of the congo territory now again it could just be a weird little wacky clue but i don't think that's the case i think that in some way and that's just the archaeological evidence he was discussing it's not counting the fourteen thousand total plus readings that he gave for people who were directly cured, who he didn't have to see. He literally could remote view their ailment from his couch. And this was confirmed by Princeton, Harvard, Stanford, the New York Times wrote an article about it. Um, It was not fake, there's sworn affidavits. There's an entire institute dedicated to preserving these records. Um, So it's why I focused on him so much as a source, but at the same time, he really provided a. I would say, if 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 the book is called Visions of Atlantis, and it's like when you go for an eye exam and the doctor says, "Okay, is this you like this one or this one? This one or the for your, for your glasses? If the lens now is okay, it's good. It's better than before, but it's not great. Well, then the 2020 vision or 2015 vision, like. I'm blessed to have the eagle eye, that would be the visions of Frederick Oliver, who really filled in all the pieces that Casey did not provide. Because as I stated, Casey's readings were very short. I believe there are only 500 on Atlantis. Most of them involve past lives. Very few, unless the questioner directly asked him a question, were given specific dates or specific aspects of... What actual lived life was like at this time. And I was just very curious because Plato describes essentially a Bronze Age, you know, quite complicated city architecturally, but nothing that's a stretch of the mind. He's describing they sailed with triremes, they fought with chariots, they all had to pay tribute to the king. It's essentially why most people think, okay, he's just rehashing his time in Athens and... Putting it in the Atlantic. Okay, great. Well, the missing, the real two smoking guns for me were when I discovered and read, which I don't think anybody that's reviewed it has truly read, um, because this is one of the weirdest books, and I've read, I'm sure, like you, thousands of books. This is one of the strangest books I've ever read, or probably has ever been written, which is Frederick Oliver's. A Dweller on Two Planets, which, if you're not familiar uh, viewers with, is an alleged audience channeled book that was a series of notes written, I believe, at the pace of two pages a day for three years, two years, something to that degree, by a 17-year-old kid living in 1881 during the gold rush in Eureka, California. Fair enough. You say, okay, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is in this book, this person says before Edgar Casey, I received these messages from an occult preceptor who spoke to me while I was out prospecting with my parents. I stopped working. I came home. This is corroborated by other people who knew him. And I started writing this book, and I take no credit for it. After he died, he died very young at the age of 33. Um, His mother printed it. He died in 1899. His mother formatted it in 1904. And I think the first pressing was 1906, 1908. And then the first major release was 1920. So when people say, well, this is just fiction, I would ask, Possibly. We have to we cannot discount that. However, as with Casey, the things Frederick Oliver says describing the life of a person named Philos, who he calls his occult preceptor, who speaks to him, who himself is using Frederick Oliver to describe his past life as a character named Zaum Numenos in Atlantis, specifically on the island of Poseid, which is quite important, that word Poseid, it it was astounding, because I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm reading, and he says at one point, you know, I'm seeing two women, I'm dating two princesses, and I got to be careful, because I'm talking to them both on my name, as I'm traveling in my veil, and he has a index at the beginning of the book and he says all of these words are written in poseidian but translated into english this is what we called all of these things so you look up what is a name well it's a handheld mirror in which you can see people anywhere in the world and you can see their voice see their picture and in fact at one point you can project them holographically a la star wars now that's quite strange And when people accuse him, and myself included, because I try always to play devil's advocate uh, and say, okay, well, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea came out in I believe eighteen seventy six. So maybe as a teenager he read. Maybe there's nothing in there like that. That's about a submarine that has an electric, you know, motor that can zap natives. It's very primitive, and the science behind it is never really explained on a level even approaching what he describes. In this book, he describes a theoretical physics of the sun. He has a three-page soliloquy on cathodicity, magnetism, gravity. He has an entire religion that's internally coherent. He describes the Essenes, which in 1881, unless you were a theology major at probably the Vatican. You have never heard of the Essenes. Uh, You really didn't hear about it in the United States until the Gnostic Gospels came out in the 70s or the early 80s. Mm. Uh, He also describes uh, the technology of the time. And I find it interesting because, you know, his Atlanteans on his timeline had what he calls veil, which were cigar-shaped aluminum, he specifically says aluminum craft that were driven essentially by in training with a power source on the main Island to repel gravity. They could travel in any medium, which is, I find quite interesting since multiple, whatever you want to call them, UAP UFO reports have, you know, these things coming out of the ocean, going into the sky, into space, transmedial craft. Um, so that was interesting and also um his discussion of the fall of Atlantis I found fascinating because in his timeline he's living in 11116 BC he specifically says that which again is it's quite an important date when you corroborate it with so many other things that we find in the book that gap between roughly 10 well 11000 and 9600 which was the date Plato gave which is also bizarre because that's literally the date of the end of the younger dryas period mm-hmm. when the earth began warming again that's that's a, he didn't say 12300 bc he said literally when he was writing in 361 bc there was a story of a country in an island that ended at 9600 bc well in A Dweller in Two Planets, um, and I'll end on this as far as the content of the book, because I would love people to, to read it. But in describing the fall of Atlantis, it was a critical point of departure for me because he says in eleven thousand one hundred and sixteen, we had all this technology. We had a massive tower that was, you know, four thousand feet tall that could ward off lightning, control the weather. We had veil. We had Essentially, holographic smartphones. We could project at the highest level uh, our technology around the world, and essentially a futuristic vision. So people say, "Okay, well, that's not at all what Plato said." How did they go from that to triremes and fighting with bronze chariots? Well, he describes at the end, and he's very specific about it. He says, "In the course of the next eight hundred years." So his timeline is roughly 10,300 BC for the end of this, but still close enough. He says in the course of that 800 years, society devolved into essentially a technocratic transhumanist elite who knew how to control everything and at the end could project themselves as pure consciousness or electricity while affecting physical matter. And so they had no use for these things. And the average person who lost that infrastructure didn't remember how to build a veil, how to build a name. Just like today, if we had an accident or a catastrophe, I wouldn't know how to build an iPhone, but I could describe it. Mm -hmm. Okay. We wouldn't have software engineers to keep the servers running, even if we had a functioning iPhone. Mm -hmm. And so he says, by the end, Essentially, it devolved by 10,000 BC into a semi-state of barbarism, where human sacrifice began. And finally, divine judgment was meted out, and that was it. And so that was an important thing, because so many people either say, well, there's just Plato's account. It's nothing, nothing, not a big deal. He was talking about the island of Thera, where there was a volcano, or he was talking about the... athens or it was fiction or it was in morocco or whatever the common you know flavor of the day is for the where is atlantis but if you look at it more um and i'll end this section of this on this if you look at it more like well it was a continent then it was a series of five islands then it was a series of then there were three And the main one was called Poseid, which makes sense because in Plato's account, he says in the center of Atlantis was a statue of Poseidon surrounded by the Nereids. So he was probably talking about the culture and the island at the same time. Uh, But that was a critical part. And, you know, once I started to think about the time spans, it made a lot more sense because if you think about... What was the United States like in 1800 compared to 2020? In 220 years, we've made uh, incomprehensible technological advances. So how long would it take if nuclear war or a catastrophe, natural or human-made, wiped us out? Would it take 800 years? Would it take even through natural decline... That long to regress into how we lived in the 1800s, and if somebody found our records and they only had a record of that, they'd say, "Well, these people, you know, they had wooden ships, and you know, they used sail, and they fought with sticks and stones in the in the streets." What are you talking about? They went to space and had rockets that could land, and all this. What is this? Well, no, we used to, but then we had a nuclear war or something. So, I think it's an important. Point to consider um, as we discuss this topic is just it's a vaster time scale than any historical time period, and on top of that, it doesn't follow a linear path. It goes up, it goes down, it goes way down. It's destroyed, it's rebuilt, it's destroyed again. It's it's really uh, the default if you believe this or believe the evidence. I rather say it's really the default state of humanity for the majority of the time we've existed as such. And really, the gap between the final destruction of Atlantis and what we call the industrial revolution today, which is a roughly mm, 10,000 plus year gap, is the weird exception where we have not been a technologically, spiritually supreme group of people. And I think that psychologically explained to me why so many people are drawn to Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, Harry Potter, Star Trek, why this inbuilt science fiction thing is such a big thing. Um, I think it's because we know that that was real on an intuitive level. And to me, the story of Atlantis was the the kind of key to understanding why these themes keep recurring throughout literature or uh film so end of soliloquy i'm starting to sound (laughs) like edgar (laughs) casey now you know we're done for the present like he said (laughs) we're
0: done for the present uh well that's a hell of an introduction a hell of an opening spiel um michael Laflemme here ladies and gents on fire so okay let's let's um pick out a couple of sort of threads to pull on and say one thing we haven't done is explain your you know your sort of origin story and how you you know ended up on this path and why why you ended up writing a book about such kooky weirdness
1: <laughs> oh wow, my origins okay well i was engineered in a laboratory in canada <laughs> they put uh metal claws in my hands so huh. no uh you know i grew up in in south florida and um I was always interested in in the ocean. And, you know, I grew up on Atlantic Boulevard next to the Atlantic Ocean. I went to Florida Atlantic University. And, you know, I didn't even remember this until I started writing the book. One day when I was eight years old, maybe nine, my grandfather took me to breakfast and he said, you know, there's something I don't understand. And he spoke many languages. He says, why is the Basque language similar to Nahuatl language in Mexico. Now I'm nine years old. I said, what? Hey, yo, what? what are you talking about? I just want to go get a milkshake or something. He said, no, it's, I don't understand it. But, you know, somebody, somebody does. I just, I don't know. And he was an amateur, you know, language expert. He was a French language teacher. And, you know, then uh, as time went on, I think I always was just curious like you know as I was learning in school the second kind of weird thing was when I was learning about the pyramids and off the bat something just did not gel with me and it was the fact that these were chambered and aligned I said I don't get it you know I think with the innocence of a kid I just I don't get it what what do you mean a tomb I've seen a I've seen a mausoleum I used to live next to a cemetery And I I said, that mausoleum doesn't have secret chambers and water flows and, you know, it's not connected to the rip. And the teacher just never had a good answer for me. And that really angered me because I was, you know, really inquisitive. And, you know, as time went on, when I went to university and things, um, I became more, um, I think of a materialist, just like most people that go to secular college. You know, it that's what they push. And I had come from a traditional Catholic school background, so I was in fact relieved to not hear the same thing and, and quite shocked at realizing so much of what I had been told was one-sided. Uh but to answer your question, you know, one day I have no idea it really was as bizarre as what Frederick Oliver said. Um, and I, I don't say this uh lightly as a joke but I was sitting in the park wicker park in Chicago and it's the only time this has ever happened I don't claim to know what it was but it felt almost like a hypnotic suggestion of an urgency and there's a story that must be told and next thing I find myself in the bookstore that I used to go to and you know they had an all alternative history section, paranormal history section. And, you know, there it was, I saw The Antediluvian World by Ignatius Donnelly. And I just started reading it. And before I knew it, I was coming back to the bookstore, finished it. And really, it started to affect my life, because anytime I would try to watch a history documentary or even teach history as a history professor, I, I started to think this is not right. This is not right. And I have, to, I have to explore this more, you know, from myself as a historian. And, you know, it resulted in weird things. It resulted in me, you know, leaving parties where I would say, I have to go home and look at this picture. And people say, you know, you're, Michael, you're going crazy and this is not healthy. Um, but I didn't care. And, you know, I even taught, uh, believe it or not, I snuck uh, Graham Hancock's Magicians of the Gods into the syllabus, believe it or not, at Loyola University. They had to buy 45 copies. You're you're welcome for that. (laughs) And I was shocked that when the teacher is actually open-minded and interested in seeing what students want to learn, that... Overwhelmingly, all of them said this is absolutely this makes sense. They were quite shocked because they said, "Well, I just took an ancient history class uh, last semester, and we learned that history began in Sumeria." And we, lear-. I said, "Okay, that's fine, but does this make sense? Who is he citing as a source? Do you believe the findings of Dr. James Kennett with the nano diamonds and the comet um, and all the things now that?" The book is finished. I can watch this ancient apocalypse that everybody's freaking out over. Yep. Um, but I was really surprised that it was the 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 norm that most of the students said, you know this this and and Hancock didn't talk about veil ships and names and ancient technology. My book is much more out there in terms of that. He just said, look, there could have been a civilization that predated. 10,500 BC, that was on some level technologically advanced. He doesn't really specify anything more than that. And, you know, it was really also disheartening to see just, you know, in recent times, how hard the academy, and I don't even want to say that, but just how hard the establishment in its various iterations pushes back against this. And I explore that topic um, as well in terms of just why do people, what is it? Is it arrogance? Is it fear? Like that could happen to us. Is it something else? Like I've built a career on this. And I've always said, I welcome critiques of this book. It makes me better. It makes the book better. Um, It has nothing to do with my, personality, my reputation. I really couldn't care less what people think about me. I let the evidence speak for itself. And, you know, I think the best historians and, you know, explorers and people, you know, that are on the cusp, people like you, people like Graham Hancock, people like Randall Carlson, people that take all the the flack, you know, um, to show, look, there's another way to look at this. This is not really explained by your eighth grade Houghton Mifflin textbook, uh, which, you know, is going to just repeat the same thing. So I think to answer your question in an extremely long winded way, it's, it was a obsessive uh, result of this strange event that, that has never happened to me in any other of the many Books and articles and things I've written, I've never had that compulsion, urgency to tell this story. And I think I if I didn't have that, it would have taken me fifteen years instead of seven.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool, man. Thanks for fleshing that out. So I guess um you know that was kind of the point of uh, the parallax view, chapter three. You know, being willing to to see thing the same information from a different perspective. I know you wanted to to kind of touch on that, and I reread that just before we kicked off. So. Yeah, tell us, tell us more about your thinking around that. Yes, well,
1: it's pretty clear to me that if we're being intellectually honest and we're applying the same standards that we apply, for example, to traditional mainstream history, like who was Julius Caesar, who was Alexander the Great. I'll give you an example. We talk about Alexander the Great Oliver Stone makes movies, this, that. Okay, fine. I'm not, that's great. I mean, pun intended, that's, that's wonderful. And I don't think anybody believes that that story is fictional because there's genetic evidence. You can go to Afghanistan and see people with Greek DNA, and you go to that town, and oh, okay. Yeah, okay. But there's details like, for example, we have no idea how tall he was. We have six different sculptures of him. We don't even know if Darius had, did he have 500,000 men at Gaugamela? Did he have a hundred thousand? We have actually no idea because the primary source for that Ptolemy's account was lost to history. So we use two or three main accounts, Appian, this, that, that, and the other to piece together, basically a fantasy story. And we teach that and history channel runs specials on it. And, that's it that's true but how many thousands of people wrote about him knew him had differing views Appian wasn't even there so that's a true account i mean and that's from you know 2000 uh years 2300 roughly years ago so when you're talking about if this indeed was real um Think about a quote that I include in there, which is an incredible quote from Hugh Lynn Casey, which I'll paraphrase, which is essentially Edgar Casey's son. And he says, look, if a tidal wave or some catastrophe today, and he's writing in the 60s, I think, destroy the United States, just the United States, wiped it off the map. He says, do you think in the year 14,027, something like that, he goes, somebody comes around drills a two-inch hole in the bottom of the ocean. What do you think they're going to find? You think they're going to find a a Hyundai Sonata and an iPhone and Brendan Murphy's guitar over there? No. They're going to find what we still find at the Mid-Atlantic Trench. They're going to say, well, there's a freshwater diatom, so there's a fossilized remain of a cat, so they worshipped cats. (laughs) And the lake was a part of their cat worship. I mean, literally, like, what, what could you say about that? So Mm -hmm. that's why I tried to go just full, you know, not quite leap of faith, but use the best, most reliable or just the most internally consistent psychic sources, so to speak, to fill in these gaps, because from Plato's account, we have little. from commentary on Plato's account we have even less his account is still the best and what's left we have what we have in chapter four fragments we have the fact that common names in Andorra sound like common names in Mexico which makes no sense whatsoever but at the same time I don't know how my grandfather came upon that pre-internet he read a lot of weird things but when you look at the Edgar Casey reading and he says when they fled Atlantis, they went to the Pyrenees, they went to Giza, they went to the Yucatan, you go, okay, he didn't say they went to northern France. He didn't say they went to Sweden. He didn't say they went to, he said they went to the Pyrenees. And where is the Basque country? It's literally in the Pyrenees. And he didn't say they went to, you know, uh, Arizona. Or Canada, he said they went to Yucatan, where the Nahuatl language originates. So, or the, so they think. So again, it, these things were almost impossibly statistically uh, accurate. If, if this is all made up, then, w- well, what what would you consider uh, mm-hmm. uh, acceptable psychic source would be my question, and, and that's the kind of you know impetus of the parallax view, which really. It's not even so much defending the clairvoyant views. I tried to show how mainstream archaeological discoveries, the things Hancock and friends discover is, I mean, look at the pyramids, for God's sake, you know, not to get angry. But I always ask people, I don't care what they are. I don't care what they do, where they Spiritual machines? Could you astrally project? Were they power plants? Were they space stations? I could really give a damn. I ask anybody. I do care. It would be fascinating to know, but we couldn't. We probably will never know conclusively because if it's true, indeed, that they are ten thousand, you know, BC origination it's ten thousand four hundred ninety, according to Edgar Casey. So, twelve thousand five hundred years old, naturally, they would have been adapted over thousands of years for different purposes. Um, but I always tell people, you know and and this is about as you know ag- aggressive as I get in writing, but I say, look, round the number off to what two point three plus million blocks that each weigh four thousand plus pounds. Okay, so go outside, take the wheels off your Jeep Grand Cherokee with the tires, just the frame and the motor, and then put a thousand pounds more in the trunk and then move that roughly 550 miles with your friends. And and you can build a ramp or a mound. You could go to Home Depot and do that. And (laughs) then do that 2.3 whatever more million times. And when you I don't think most people even know these things. Like I think most people think, well, I've built things with bricks. How hard could it be? Well, it, it's qu- quite hard. In fact, it's absurd, really, on the face <clears throat> of it, that these things were built using even conventional machinery in 2022 would be impossible. There there is no machine. In fact, Graham Hancock in the nineties interviewed somebody who was a professional freight lifter and he said, wait, wait, what? How much do those things weigh? And he said, how many are there? And Hancock and I think Boval was with him said, yeah, could you do that? And he worked on the docks in New York. He said, that's impossible. Like nobody could do that. Mm -hmm. And that was in 1997, I think. So I always work backwards because if the debunkers are going to come at me with, you're crazy. I say, please explain this to me. Like, and don't just say they did it with a mound that that was really big no you now have to sit here like i've sat here and please explain it's like please explain to the jury how they got the mound what did it look like where's the record of the mound besides herodotus who was writing you know if this date is correct ten thousand five hundred years after the damn thing was built so what what is he and he had a bias against the egyptians at the time he thought they were inferior he said look at these frivolous Monuments that these people build when we have, you know, aqueducts and things like that. So, when you look at the Egyptian sources, what do they say? They say things that, according to Jason Colavito, look like magic and implanted medieval myths. And I'm sure many things were embellished because those myths or those stories were written themselves 12,000 plus years after the purported date, according to Edgar Cayce and others, of 10,500. So I'm not saying they're the truth, but all of those say, written over hundreds of years during the medieval period in various parts of the Middle East, they say the same thing. They say we are warned of an impending cosmic catastrophe, and we were told to build a refuge or a redoubt against that in this region and put within it all the knowledge of the past to preserve against the coming flood. That's what they say, all of them. And so it becomes this question of like, well, you're a debunker. Yeah, well, Herodotus was a debunker. And he, in fact, Herodotus was much more intelligent than you on orders of magnitude. So I'm going to listen to his debunking first. But that's one source who was from a hostile neighboring country, Mm -hmm. who was getting told stories 500-hand from the originators who, according to Casey, built this. So I wouldn't call that a primary account. No, no, that's right. (laughs) By any stretch. And (laughs) again, in an absurd way, as somebody trained as a professional historian, as bizarre as it sounds, the best primary accounts of that time period are the edgar casey readings yeah because using just logical deduction if he was able to locate missing people oil deposits heal people if he knew the nile river flowed into the atlantic well that leads me to believe he was probably more than not accurate about these dates when he picked the date of four or ten thousand 490 to 10,390 for the construction time of the Great Pyramid. Again, he didn't say 12, he didn't say 50. He said it ended in the year 10,390 BC. They finished it. Well, what does Robert Boval find out? Well, he looks at the aerial map in the Cairo Museum of the Three Pyramids, realizes they're aligned with Orion does a procession of the equinox regression in his computer well gee what's the date that those three things line up 10400 bc now oh just a weird wacky koinky <laughs> dink yeah <laughs> so again after just hitting you over the head with these things you start to go you know and it scared me because it's it's the implications of this if true change the way I think about the past and really change the way I think about the present, you know, and, and what our roles in this whole game really are. Because if we're just kind of relearning everything, that's a very different disposition than, Oh, we're, we've got an iPhone 13 and we're we're at the top cool- of the
0: pile. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you know, it's very, it, I guess it's a humbling experience. When you realize, you know, yeah, we can do crazy things. I'm not denying that. Like mm-hmm. seeing the Falcon rocket land, I'm not so cynical as to say, ah, that's no big deal. Like that's a huge deal. But in other ways, um, you know, I think certain technologies in the United States and the West have gone uh, exponentially one way, like communications technology, maybe Even rocketry until Elon with the landing rocket hadn't really progressed since the 50s. But in many ways, we're compared to the Casey and Oliver descriptions of Atlantean life, uh, very, very behind in terms of a global crystal that can power using basically solar radiation channeled across Wi-Fi networks that can, I mean, Casey even describes, you know, you don't need to have a heater in your house. You heat your house through caloravayance conveyed through the crystal mm-hmm. with receptors in your house to pick up a resonant way. I mean, th- this is quite interesting. And so I think like perhaps uh, if nothing else, it's an interesting kind of uh, vision of the future. Mm-hmm. Although it took place in what we call the past, on mm-hmm. a timeline from left to right, which itself is artificial, doesn't mean really anything. What is? Where is yesterday on a line in your life, Brendan? Were you here? Now you're here. You know. But we're so trained to think like that that it's understandable mm-hmm. because you go to school and they put 10,000 BC on this part, and we're here. And most people organize their lives like that. I do as well. So it's it's difficult to wrap your mind, I think, around the the cyclical nature of history because it really takes the wind out of the, the sails of people who think, uh, oh, in five years, we're going to have this and that and upload our consciousness into computers and that's it. And yay. It's like, well, according to Barbara Han Klaus reading, they tried that and uh that was not good and that's a quite interesting chapter on what she says that when she wrote that in 1992 uh it's unbelievable compared to the last two years what she said um how bizarrely accurate her description her description of one of the destructions of atlantis was to to current pushes for transhumanism Mm -hmm. um in her description it was a transhumanist a Pleiadian scientist king that was responsible for destroying the island at the end through a misapplication of a technology designed to make people who were already chipped with the crystal implants more obedient because they were rebelling. Mm. Her words. Where have
0: we heard this before?
1: I think I've heard it from a World Economic Forum post or something. I can't recall. <laughs> but. It was just kind of um, a chapter that I wanted to write because, and it was a preemptive attack. I'll say that right now on the record because the discussion Mm -hmm. is valid. It's quite important. It's fascinating. You realize most people that you walk up to, just like with extraterrestrials or anything, they believe it. They're just waiting for you to say you believe it. Mm -hmm. And the only reason they're waiting for you to say that is because the sheer weight of mainstream consensus reality in terms of shaming people is so strong that people would rather not talk about something they believe in than think, well this person's just going to call me crazy or yeah. something like that.
0: Yeah, so. exactly. hmm. With that said, let me just have a quick look at some of my notes here so. This is such an interesting book. I mean, we can go so many places with it, and I am going to obviously encourage everyone to read this thing. Um, I like there was a little interesting bit about the link between Plato and Socrates, which is which is something that I don't think I knew at, at, at the point where I was reading. I was like, oh, okay, this is interesting. So we we know about Plato's you know account of Atlantis, but it was actually apparently. Because of Socrates, and, and that, um, it's like Plato's the mouthpiece, but it, I think you said in the book that it's it was his interpretation of what Socrates said that was so key. Right. And in fact, that's, uh, um, that's
1: a thread that mainstream historians might debate. Um, what's very interesting about what you said is in another channeler, uh, Phyllis Schlemmer's account, who was a famous channeler from the 70s, whose book I quoted, The Only Planet of Choice, who basically was responsible for Gene Roddenberry creating the Star Trek franchise Hmm. and using terms like the Federation because she described getting extraterrestrial messages from a galactic federation. Hmm. So in her account of Atlantis, which is quite bizarre, in fact, don't really want to talk about some of the things she said on there, not appropriate, but a lot of perversions and things like this Hmm. in the book towards the end of the culture. Um, not surprising.
0: And that came but up in Casey's readings too, didn't it? In Casey's
1: readings, in Oliver's reading, it's a, it's an absolutely horrifying account that he describes of basically not the day it ended because he said it didn't end after this event, but that was the final straw. And it was when a, a priestess from the law of one essentially went to plead with people who had converted the Incolithon pyramid into a ritual sacrifice chamber, and then they end up doing horrifying things to her. And it's at that point that uh, an apparition holographically appears, Allah, Star Wars Rogue One, and says, basically, the end is near. Attend ye, Atlan will no longer be beheld in the whole course of the sun, and goodbye. Uh, In Phyllis Schlemmer's account, though, she describes the chain of custody, as you mentioned, with the story, and she says that it was Socrates who was used as a channel, like a Casey, and that Plato interpreted it, and that it was purposely kind of occluded because the full details of that time period would have derailed ancient Greek society or just not been believed. And she said what was more important was that the possibility existed as a kind of projection from the past into the future it, it, to kind of like science fiction, but based in reality, show you what could have been or could be going forward, which I thought was interesting. And you know, it's not that strange because people think Plato and Socrates were you know, like current academics from my field were very safe. You walk around with the little name tag, you know, you've never had a problem besides your Apple pay doesn't work that day or whatever. (laughs) But think about it. Plato and Socrates, I believe fought back to back in a phalanx in physical combat in a skirmish or something Mm -hmm. like to that effect. Um, Also, you know, the. The uh, the ability of these two people to come up with things like the allegory of the cave, in the, the allegory of the cave, or you know different things attributed to Socrates within the dialogues. A lot of people attribute that to the psychedelic experience that all great Greek philosophers had in the Eleusinian Mysteries, where they took probably a fermented form of ergot and were. Taken underground into this, you know, vast complex, which a lot of people went to. It was kind of like a burning man of of ancient Greece, really. As as they describe it, it it sounds almost like Burning Man is like another Eleusinian mystery. Mm. And you know, so in that sense, if these people were doing psychedelics, it's absolutely possible Mm. that these echoes of the past could have been coming through them and whether Socrates sat on a couch and, and started channeling, uh, is who knows? Or better yet, whether he existed at all. Is mm. he another fiction of Plato's Atlantean? You know, everything's made up if Plato said it, but we still teach that Plato is the founder of Western philosophy. We still base the, uh, I don't know, the political system of the West on the Republic in many ways. So we think that's true, but oh, don't you dare go back past that. Don't you, in a hundred years, go past that nice, neat date of, you know, whatever, Mary Leakey finding a bone somewhere and then fast forward 300,000 years to uh, the unexplained simultaneous arrival of civilization with pyramidal structures and megalithic architecture all over the world uh from from hunter gathering people who you know were walking on their knuckles. It, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's quite that's ridiculous to me. Like that that story is just as stupid as the the most absurd uh fantasies of you know ancient aliens and 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 things like this that take mm-hmm. some you know leaps of logic in many cases in my part or just stretch evidence to a point where I become myself a a debunker and go, wait, wait a minute, you know, not, not every megalithic uh, structure was an alien spaceport, you know, <laughs> yeah. not, not all of them, maybe some, maybe two, three, but not everything was a, an alien yeah. spaceport. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like and it's, so, it's,
0: it's so interesting, man, because you, you know, and you did a really good um, job of, you know, documenting this, all of these structures around the world. And this was also the thrust of Graham Hancock's recent documentary. And obviously his writing um, mm. was they're encoding messages about a certain point in our time in our history and they're trying to convey this information like there's a there was a disaster there was something major that happened a huge trauma a huge catastrophe and there's in, there's intelligent information being conveyed in them and it's a very earthly human kind of a a story and a context and in those instances we don't need to you know invoke the idea of ancient aliens or whatever to explain these things there was clearly a purpose for them Um, i think it's quite obvious reading your book and and similar types of work that an atlantean civilization that was far more advanced than mainstream could ever possibly credit them definitely existed and so that these other these other structures around the world these other cultures where they, we've got so many clues, the linguistic similarities and all this stuff, um, they're legacy civilization, they legacy cultures of this, this you know ruined um, entity. You'll find the full video and any bonus materials in my exclusive members-only portal, The Truth-Aversity. This unique creation is the official home for all my multimedia research and entertainment content. Updated regularly, my members get access to absolutely everything I create, including full podcasts, courses, articles, videos, audio files, the whole enchilada. Book your spot at truthiversity.com.